So if you're not, uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been now in uh, in the Sermon on the Mount for uh, for four weeks. This is our fourth week uh, going through the text, and man, has it been heavy and I think profound and convicting for me, and I hope it has been for you. And this is maybe one of those important things we can take away from the Sermon on the Mount. See, I think what we've done oftentimes with the Sermon on the Mount is it's, it's not as, uh, as, as sexy maybe as some other verses, right? Because it, it seems like when you read it, it's just kind of, it's hard and you have to wrestle with it. You guys are freaking out that I said sexy. I, how old are we? This is, that's right, 19, like all of you. Okay. Um, so the verses are they're difficult and they're tough to wrestle with. And they say things like love your enemy. And how antiquated of an idea is that? Like why do you know what's happening in her world today and I'm supposed to love that person? It says do not repay evil for evil. But wait, wait, so you're saying justice isn't mine to take? Uh, so all of these things, and I think we've kind of tried to explain away some of this because it's pretty difficult. Uh, because it's some realities that I think are hard for our hearts and our minds, and especially just the way we live this out to, to wrap around. Uh, but that's why we need God, I think, to come in and, and shape us. And so the Sermon on the Mount gives us this, this perfect, beautiful ethic of the kingdom of God that every, hear me, every single Christian in the room is supposed to be aligned with. Like, there, there's not a, hey, I, I don't want this. I, I just want the Jesus that saves me. I don't want the Jesus that leads me. Right? I, I just want the Jesus that like, gives me the good things and not the Jesus that also said, no, I promise you, there will be trial and persecution. And so we kind of give and take which parts of the gospel and of Christ that we want. And, and listen, Christians, we can't do that. Right? And so this text today pushes us even farther along in this, this difficult trajectory of the ethic of the kingdom of God. Now, a few things before we jump into the text, some key points that I think are necessary as we move forward. First, there's a ton to cover today. Uh, we're going to look at 26 verses, some of the most hard-hitting stuff, I think, that the Sermon on the Mount has for us. And let me tell you why we did it this way, because we're going to go through it, and you're going to be like, man, I wish we could have spent an entire 45 minutes, probably a whole series, just talking about lust, right? That, that does make sense, and maybe we will do that. But the reason why we packaged all of this together, because it's the same message and theme that Jesus is trying to communicate to us, and it's always and forever, it starts in the heart, Right, that, that all of the sins that we'll talk about today, they start here. Right? That, that it, there's nothing going on externally that didn't get, find its roots right in here. And so Jesus is going to come in and he's going to say all these things, but it's always going to be focused on the internal. Like what's going on in your heart that would cause you to murder? What's going on in your heart that would cause you to commit adultery and attack it there? Because there is where we truly find the biggest battle. The second thing is... Uh, uh, did I just take the second thing already? I did, yeah. So that was one and two. So there you go. Yesterday, yesterday uh, there was a picture posted on Facebook by my, my amazing wife, Verity, and it was uh, of me and, and Verity and my son, Finley, uh, standing in front of a North Country sign after a race that I finished, right? And, and what's neat about this, uh, this race, and there was actually a bunch of people from Redemption, there actually, shout out to Justin Singleton. I don't actually think he's here, but he won it, which is amazing. Um, yeah, I know. He actually, yeah, never mind. But so, uh, so we do this race, right? And on the little thing, the bib, right, with the number on it, um, you can tell I race a lot. Uh, so on this thing that they put on your stomach, uh, it says Flagstaff Marathon on the front. And so everyone who is seeing this photo, because it doesn't disclaimer that I just did a 10K, so let's be very clear, okay? Um, I did one, less than one-fourth of a marathon. And so uh, everyone is sending me messages like, 
hey, man, that's amazing. I can't believe you ran a marathon, you know? And I'm like, I can't either. That's, you know? <laughs> and, and people are like, I can't believe you did it. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, why are you so surprised, you know? And then you're rude. And then... And so, but here's the thing. There's this internal struggle as, as people are constantly texting, man, that's great. I can't believe you did that and da da um, and, and I have this, this, this feeling in my heart of like, don't tell them. Don't tell them you, you did a less than a fourth of the marathon. You know, Let them think you are better than you are, right? You see, we as a culture... And you can see it in the fact that each one of us who has Instagram or Facebook or Twitter only puts on our best content, right? We are constantly in this battle of what the external shows to the world. And I think it's okay for us to wrestle with that, but not at the expense of not spending the right amount of time of figuring out why we make those decisions. So just as I'm getting in these texts and I begin to even feel this tug and something so silly about how far I ran on a mountain and I'm feeling this like, man, I really want these people to think I'm, I'm great. Like this, this big old dude ran 26.2 miles, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm having this internal wrestle. And I realize, man, this is, this is it. I, the reason why that wrestle exists is because I am filled with pride and I'm filled with insecurity. And the, these are the reasons why I wrestle with that issue. So, praise the Lord, I made the right decision. I told everyone, listen, I, I know, it's only a 10K. Don't, don't puff me up, you know what I mean? Um, but this is the reality of what we have to deal with. Every single day, listen, in big times and in small times, you are confronted with how do we balance the external and the internal. And I want to just tell you today that if you don't have the internal kind of in order, if you're not looking at that continuously, which I think we are terrible at, the external is never going to sort itself out. When you sort out just the external, that's a thing called behavior modification, and that will not last. It will last you about a month on average, right? And we know that because, again, I've said this before, but every January, we come here, right? We talk about our resolutions, and it says on average, resolutions stop by February 2nd, okay? So we can go about 33 days before behavior modification fails us. And yet we continue to go back to it. And so my call right now is to invite you to allow the scripture this morning to shape your heart, right? To truly put in check some of maybe the presuppositions you would bring to the text and say, no, no, God, I need you to transform me. I need you to make me new. I need my heart to be different so that then the external is organized. Can we do that? Can we get an amen to that? All right. The last thing we're going to hear today very frequently is Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but now I say, right? So you've heard it taught this, but now I say this. And so here's what's happening. He is not, I want to be very close, he is never contradicting the law, right? He's not saying that the Torah ever said anything wrong. In fact, we visited that last week. In fact, Jesus fulfills the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He fulfills the law. And so everything from the past, he's not contradicting. He's saying, you've missed it the whole time. Right, that there was something underneath the law and commands of God that we have missed and that the Pharisees and the religious elite of the time that will read this text also missed, abused, and used for their own benefit. We have done the same thing time in and time out with Scripture, and we must repent and we must come and allow God to change us because misunderstanding leads towards misapplication, and misapplication leads towards death. We must understand what's happening here. 
what ways we've taken the word of God and made it palatable for ourselves, in what ways we've taken the word of God and made it so that it benefits us and not necessarily actually doing what it commands us to do. We have to begin to to acknowledge that we have bias when we come to the word of God and try and return to, God, what do you actually have for us so that we could apply it rightly and then see the benefits of how God wants to use the church in changing this world? One more amen? All right. I am going to, as we go through this, call from some, for some audience participation. And there should be a lot of raised hands, okay? And if there's not, then you're all liars and you're already breaking part of this, okay? <laughs> the first thing we'll look at is anger and discord amongst our relationships. Verse 21, he starts off. You have heard it said that those, uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, so the law. The law says don't murder, right? Like don't take the life of another. This is right straight from the Ten Commandments and other parts of the law. Don't kill someone else. Do not murder someone else. Now, now, now listen, the, the Pharisees hadn't misunderstood that. They're like, oh yeah, we don't, we're not actually supposed to murder. But Jesus is saying again, here's what we need to do with this. We need to peel back the layers of do not murder and realize there's something else going on there. What relationship and friendship do you have is predicated and you are enjoying that friendship because they haven't killed you yet, right? So like Anthony and I are really good friends. We're not really good friends because Anthony's yet to murder me, Right? <laughs> I hope, right? So it's because I think he loves me, he's for me, we laugh, we have some more hobbies, etc. It's not because murder has yet to happen. And yet that's the way we treat the law of God. We're like, well, I haven't murdered yet, so I guess I'm a pretty good person. You never say, I, I haven't killed Anthony yet, so I guess I'm a pretty good friend. Emphasis on yet. Just kidding. So, yeah. It's a stereotypical murder joke at church, you know. Um, is that the way, that's not the way we define relationships. No, no, no. There's something behind that that we have to peel back, and that's what Christ is getting at. He's like, listen, guys, you know the law. Do not murder, and yeah, you've abided by that really well, but let's talk about what's behind it, that your hearts are filled with anger and malice and deceit and gossip, and you do not care for the other the way that this law was intended for you to do. It's not just about murder. It's what's happening inside of you. So we've interpreted, I think, this text in our, in our hearts, in our time, of I can treat whomever, however, because that's my right. And I see it all the time. Whether it's I'm watching news or I'm reading news or I'm sitting down and talking to me or I'm just sitting down doing work at a coffee shop and I hear the way people talk about other people. And it's like, I can feel and think and say whatever I want to whomever I want. It does not matter because that's my right in an individualistic society. Friends, that is not what the scripture allows for the people of God. Do you have anger in your heart for your brother or sister? And if you do, you are in sin and you must repent. It's so serious to the point where Jesus says, if you've got anger in your heart, you're already murdering your brother. So he, it's, it's not like he grades murder here and anger here. He says, no, no, they're the same thing because I care about the heart. So how many murderers do we have in the room today? 
right. There we go. So you're getting it. I've had anger. I mean, I, mean, I have like anger issues, I think, at times. Like I'm the, I'm the guy who gets frustrated and hits a pillow, you know? That's not okay. Just, just because it was by myself in a room when I was frustrated. No, no, that, is, that is sin that wants to be rooted out of me. And then what happens is when it's there, it leads towards the terrible treatment of people around me. And we see it so prevalent in the church, outside the church, in our world. What is happening inside your heart? Now, a great example of what to do and how to handle this. Now, Jesus is being so wise and giving us the answer. In verse 23, he says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The alternative Right, so as anger wells up, the alternative is always and forever reconciliation. Right, so, so if there's anger in your heart against someone, so here's what, here's what he, Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, before you can go and worship the Lord, right, so they would go to the temple, bring their offering of worship. They would go to him, and they're saying, before you even do that, go find the person who thinks you've sinned against them and go and be reconciled first before you even go worship. That's how important it is that God's people dwell together in unity. That reconciliation become the right alternative to anger, to frustration, to malice, to deceit, to gossip. You have something against someone, they have something against you, be a man, be a woman, go and meet with that person. Sit down, have the awkward, tough conversation and say, here's what's going on. Do not let this fester in your heart. If you think it's small now, guess what? The heart is fickle, it's pathological, and it will grow, and it will grow into something that you will never want to talk to the person about. So get it while it's small. Don't wait. Dwell together in unity, okay? So this next part, uh, he addresses sexual sin, okay? Again, focusing on the heart here. Verse 27, you have heard, it, heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than, than that your whole body go into hell. Okay, so again, the law. The law says do not commit adultery. I do not covet thy neighbor's wife. Do not commit adultery. I mean, it's just, it's there, it's plain. Now again, Jesus comes in and says, well, let's, let's peel that back. Because there's something even behind this. Surely adultery is bad. But guess what? Verity and I don't have a great marriage because I have yet to cheat on her. Right? Hopefully not. Like if, if our entire marriage, and I'm just stoked that I woke up this morning and known, well, she hasn't slept with another guy, so I guess we're good. That is not a good marriage. There is something behind this ethic. And it's what's going on in my heart. What's going on in her heart? How do we love each other? What is happening as we look behind the scenes? This lust issue has so gripped our society, it is unbelievable. 
Just before service, Anthony and I pulled up. There's a, uh, a pornography website that issues out this infographic every year of just the stats of the amount of hours that, that the world spends looking at pornography, right? And we're talking like, I already forget, it was like 90 billion hours a year. 90 billion hours a year. That is more hours than hours lived by every person in the history of the world. 90 billion hours. Do we have people that are focused on this thing? Lust has grit, and listen, this is not, this is not a non-Christian thing. This is, a, this is a whole total world thing. So I, I subscribe to Sports Illustrated uh, because, I, I mean, I love sports and, and love reading about it. Uh, and so, I mean, I don't need, actually, my aunt got it for me, but I read it. And uh, every, every once in a while, once a year, Sports Illustrated comes out with a, with a special magazine called uh, the Swimsuit Edition, right? So Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition um, because that has a lot to do with sports. And, and so it comes in the mail about, I don't know, three, four months ago. Uh, and I pull it out, you know, and I'm look, I look at the cover, and right on the cover, there's, you know, an attractive female in a very small bikini. And, and I have this immediate thought, right, of like some right, not great thoughts, and then I think to myself, what do I do with that? Like, what do I do with this? I, I could hold on to this, I could, I could hide this, I could do all sorts of things, or I could throw it away, which is what I did right away. So before I even got home, I picked it up from the mail, I walked back home, it right in the trash. But we are constantly inundated 24-7 with images that will draw lust from you. Lust, lust is, is simply, right, it's when lust is something that overcomes your righteous desires. And so when we see these images, do you realize the dramatic impact they're having on the way your brain is oriented, on what your heart clings to? It, might, it affects you now, but it will affect you for years and years and years well into your marriage and beyond. Please, I, this is just me going off on a tangent of just please, please, if you are struggling in this area, please come talk to me Go talk to Anthony, go talk to Andy, go talk to Randy, go talk to any person in this church that just seems like maybe they might be a good person to talk to. Get it out there. Do not keep this to yourself. What is happening in your heart, I cannot look at. Jesus knows it all, though, right? So you're not hiding anything from him. You can hide it from me. You can hide it from the people around. Jesus sees it, and he wants you to come out with it because it is destroying you, and you might not even know it yet. Please come talk to us. I can't tell you how many meetings I've had recently with just guys that waited too long. And now we're really going to have to fight. And, I, and listen, power of God, he's going to win every time, right? But listen, do it. As soon as that starts coming up, talk, come. Please engage with us on this issue. Um, Okay, uh, next up he talks about divorce. And this one's a very sensitive issue, I know. Um, and, and a lot of these, let me say this again, um, a lot of these I know require probably more time. And so if you're really wrestling with any of these issues, uh, again, please come and talk to us and we'll sit down and, and we can spend more time together. But verse 31 says this, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. 
And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the law says, listen, divorce is serious, and, and if you want to do it, right, you have to give this certificate. Now, let's be very clear. We have to go Old Testament and understand some context. Divorce never and never will be the first desire of the heart of God. So when he gives this to Moses and says, okay, if a man wants to divorce his wife, he must present a certificate of divorce. This was not the original intention. This came in amongst the disobedience of the people of God. And so he said, here's what's happening. Divorces are happening, and the women in these situations are then being subjugated to third-class citizenry and a lot of times going into uh, terrible situations because their husband was their provider. They had no home, they had no place, they had no money, they had nowhere to go. And so God comes in and says, if this is going to happen, if you guys are going to do this, then at least do it this way. Because he so cares for his creation, he so cares for the women in this world, that he creates this thing that was mandatory in the law of God to care for women who have been left. Now what had happened, though, is when we get into the the current time of this text... During Jesus' time, the Pharisees, the other religious elite, have taken this reality and then they have shifted it to work within their own personal gain. So um, this is straight from the Mishnah, which is a, comment, a Jewish commentary on Scripture and on the life of the Jew. And they say this. This is the school of Shammai. And so these, these names that you hear, these are different rabbis. And different rabbis had different interpretations of the different parts of the law of God. And so he says this, the school of Shammai says, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. So pretty accurate, right? But the school of Hillel says, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, right? So she wasn't a great cook. That's clear, right? This is a rabbi, Jewish rabbi. He's using this text to say, oh yeah, 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 you know, certificate, that's fine if she's not a good cook, Right? Rabbi Akiba says he may divorce her even if he found another fairer than she. So again, Jewish rabbi saying, okay, man, you want out of this? Just find someone you find more attractive. Now, now we think that we hear this, like, that's crazy. This is what our world believes, right? Irreconcilable differences is just another way of saying, I want something better, I want out. Now, that is a gross generalization. I get that, and that's not every situation. But in many of the situations I know, that's exactly what that is. I found someone better, more attractive. This goes both directions, right? I, I don't like the way she cooks, so we're saying, well, it cooks. I, I just don't like the way that she does this, right? This just bugs me too much. I, I got to get out. Uh, I, don't, I don't like the way that she, and on, I don't like the way he, and so we cannot seem to make this work, and so uh, I'm out. And so what, what, what the, the religious elite of the time have done, have taken the law of God, they've distorted it for their own means because they wanted out. They wanted to be able to uh, pocket some of the sums of money from those who also wanted out of their relationships. It was just as corrupt as much of the corruption that we see today. And so Jesus comes in, he says, listen, here's, here's what I say. Uh, let's go back to this. Let's understand what's the heart level of what we're trying to engage with. And so what he says is, um, do you understand the importance of what the marital union is all about? Do you understand that the only way out of this thing is through marital, marital unfaithfulness? Now, just as a nugget, right, the Bible also clears desertion by an unbeliever in other parts of the, uh, other parts of the Bible, just in case you're curious. This is the primary reason why, okay, this is okay, is because of unchastity, because of infidelities, because you slept with another person. Now, we have to understand what marriage is, understand why this is kind of your, your quote-unquote way out as we treat it. 
You see, what happens when man and woman come together is it says that the Bible literally says that they enter into what's called a debauch relationship, right? Which is a, a oneness that, is, that is signifies literally that two separate entities became one entity, and it happens through intercourse. And so what happens when you commit adultery, when you, are, uh, when you practice infidelity with another, when you sleep with another, you fracture that oneness and you are then now one with someone else. That marriage is already messed up because you joined with somebody different. That's why there's the green light, if you will, here. So you peel back the layer and you're saying, do you realize the depth and the importance of what a marriage is? And our culture has lost it. Hence the divorce rates in our country. You realize that in the beginning when God is creating the world and he has a mission for the world and he says, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I want to cultivate the land. I want to make it something that is beautiful, that gives me glory and is a blessing to all who are in it. What does he do is he creates a family. He creates a husband and he creates a wife and he gives them two missions. He says, go tend to the land and then be fruitful and multiply. God's initial Mission to the world was dependent upon the family unit. That's how important this is. And so I imagine Jesus, who, who created the world, is now looking upon the way that they were treating divorce and marriage, the way we, we treat divorce and marriage, and saying, did you forget? Do you not know how important this is? And then we go on further. We know now, right, on the other end of the Bible, Ephesians chapter 5, that husband and wife are a picture of Christ in the church. And so the husband and wife, the married couple, is to be a vision and a picture to the watching world about the goodness and the absolute love of Jesus to pursue his bride and ultimately point to the glory of the one who's created it all. He's peeling back these layers and saying, well, what's going on in here? What are we missing that's causing us to live in these certain ways? Okay, he goes on. The next one. Um, this one is integrity, okay? <clears throat> Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Nothing more than this comes from evil. Numbers 30, 30 verse 2 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So he's saying, okay, Jesus comes in and he's saying, you know what the law is? Said that it says if you really want to promise something, um, take this oath, right? Make this pledge, make this swear. What had happened then, the interpretation, the, the, the corruption of this verse by the Pharisees and religious elite was to say, I will just take these oaths, not live up to them, but still take them so that you trust me. Now, this is something we do all day. How many people have ever used the words, I swear or I promise? Yes? Okay. I swear, man, I'll be there. I promise. No, no, no I promise. I swear. I promise. I swear. I swear this time. There's a good friend of mine. We've, uh, we've had four scheduled meetings Wednesday mornings, and he won't mind if I put him on blast like this. He's, he's not here today anyway. And uh, <laughs> four meetings, and every time he misses because he slept in, and every time he texts me back, he's like, I swear next time. And I say, dude, stop doing that, man. 
I just, like Matthew 5. Um, <laughs> so, so this is the, the, the context of the day. And so here's what happened. Jesus comes in and he says, listen, stop doing that. Like, just stop saying, I swear. So stop saying, well, I'll take this oath out against the name of Christ. Stop, stop doing that. Just let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. In other words, let your integrity, let your character, let your life just be a life of character, integrity, and goodness. You don't need to keep saying, well, I promise I'm, just do it. He's like, stop saying you're going to do something. Just do it. We are a culture of overpromise and underdeliver. We just need to be a culture of just deliver. Not even promise and deliver. Just, just do what you're supposed to do. Do what you say you're going to do. It's that simple. Let your character shine through in these ways. And it, it confounds me how difficult this is. And there's so many, like, even real simple ways that this happens. It happens here on Sunday every morning, and I hear it, and I will follow up with people to ask, hey, did you actually do that? And it's every time someone shares, hey, this is something going hard in my life, and I hear someone say, man, I'll be praying for you, right? And I've gone back to people and said, hey, you said you were going to pray for Dane. So I, not, you know, not that you have a lesson to pray for, Dane, sorry. Um, you said you were going to pray for this person, that person. Did you do that? No, I didn't. I forgot. Why would you say it? Because we, we struggle with the immediate, with the gratification of the immediate. So, so we, we want to we make people, again, I think there's, we want people to think that we're great. So, hey, I'm going to pray for you, man. I'm going to be real spiritual. It's going to be awesome. And then we don't do it. No, I, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then we don't do it. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. It's, it's, re, like, it's not a difficult thing. And here's why we're flying through these again. Because this doesn't require a ton of commentary. Like, I would love for us just to have ears for this text as if we were an original disciple listening to the Sermon on the Mount. Like, we, we go and we're like, ah, yeah, but, you know, like, you know, 2 Thessalonians 6 says, that, no, no, like, just, just do what you say you're going to do. May we be those people. The church is called to be those type of people to the world and, and to one another. Um, have you guys ever, yeah, never mind, we're going to leave that. Okay. Next up is pride and vengeance. A couple more, and we'll wrap up. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, this one this is where we start getting a little, we get a little controversial. I think for the most part, most people would agree with most stuff we've said before, but this one seems that we really cling tightly to this idea. I think justice, which I think is given from the heart of God, right? this desire for justice is a good thing. Um, but when we become the center of that justice, I think then that's when this goes askew. Okay, so what Jesus says here is, he's quoting again the Old Testament in multiple verses throughout the Old Testament. You'll see an eye for an eye. So repay in the same amount that which has been done to you due to the one who's committed the crime. An eye for an eye. But Jesus says to love such people. Jesus says not to resist such evil. Jesus says that when, when people take something from you, give them additional stuff. Jesus says when they drag you a little bit, go even farther. The great prophet of our day, Selena Gomez, says kill him with kindness. <laughs> right? That was my pop culture joke of the day. 
It says that my ethic considers the other more important than myself. My, my ethic, my kingdom is, is ruled by a, by a different value system. And it says that when, when people come at me, I, I think of their benefit, not my own. I, I want to do something that as, as much as I can serve and go with them the extra mile and care for them, all of that, I want that to communicate something about the gospel. I care more about them than I care about myself. Now, us, what do we interpret this, and often I resist evil at all costs, and justice is only served when I get you back. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that, and it's Jesus. The problem with that is Jesus. He says in Romans 12, 17 through 21, through the Apostle Paul, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I'm going to read that again. It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil with evil but overcome evil with good. Okay. Now, we have taken such texts, and here's my struggle with it. Because I think what we do is we have this immediate reaction, and we always go to kind of this greatest exception moment and say, well, what about this? What about this scenario? If this were to happen, then what should we do, Right? What, what, if, what if this person storms into my house and takes my wife captive and puts a gun to her head and says, man, if, if you don't, whatever, then I'm going to kill your wife. And I say, okay, well, in that situation, yes, this gets very confusing. But that doesn't happen all that often, right? I, I, and if it has happened to you, man, let's talk. I would love to hear how you wrestled with texts like this and that moment. And I think, because here, let me be very clear. Here's what this text is not saying. It's not saying you can never defend yourself. Plenty of other scriptures also incorporate into this is saying that very clearly. But I think it's talking again as we peel back the layers of scripture, what is happening in your heart in these moments of vengeance? When someone has committed evil against you, what is happening in here? There's an article written by a pastor that I, I'm a pretty big fan of. His name's John Piper. He's up in Minnesota. And this was immediately following the San Bernardino shootings, which were devastating. And he came out, and, and, and right after the shootings, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. is a pastor, or a pastor, the leader of um, Liberty University on the East Coast. And he said, listen, uh, he implored all of his students, like, get trained in having, uh, having, being able to carry, right? And we're going to give you uh, tips on how to use your weapon safely and all that stuff. Sounds, that's fine, right? And he said, and, and let's just see. If they come here, let's see what happens to them and them being Muslims, right? So if, if Muslims showed up here and terrorists, let me be very clear, so he wasn't saying all Muslims, they don't hate Muslims, but if, if they show up here, if terrorists show up here, watch what happens, and so John Piper wrote an article in response to this. And he was also very clear, as I'd like to be, I'm, this has nothing to do with guns. Please hear me. Like, you want to own a gun? Own a gun. That's great. Okay? What I'm saying, though, and what Piper was saying, was should the flinch response of the heart of the Christian be, if you come near me, I will kill you? Like, should, should that be the posture of the heart of the Christian man and the Christian woman? Not that it will never have to happen, 
Hear me. Not that it will never have to happen, but that should that be the heart flinch of, you know what? You're going to come here. If you come here, you're dead. Why? Why is that the first place our heart goes? And I think that's what he's addressing here. I don't think he's trying to speak to that one exception moment and say, hey, in that moment, you're supposed to just let that guy kill your wife. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, what's going on in here that for some reason, when someone does something against us, we stop believing the gospel? Like, if someone steals my stuff, do I need to freak out and go and hurt that person, or do I truly believe that God is my provider and he will give me everything I need? Do, if someone hurts me, do I need to hurt them back, or do I truly believe that vengeance belongs to God and not me? That my life, whether I die here this very day, is secured forever, eternally. So, so what do, I think he's just confirming, what do you actually believe about God and the gospel if your first flinch is harming others if they hurt you, when the entire ethic of scripture seems to point to a savior who came, was beaten, killed, scourged, and did nothing in retaliation? We have to wrestle with, again, what is the heart posture? And I think, again, as we figure this out, the external tends to line up. Okay. Do not repay evil for evil, for vengeance belongs to the Lord. Okay, last one. I know it's a lot. Let's keep going. Last up, we talk about love and our enemies. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do your same. So this is very interesting because here's what Jesus does. He goes, hey, you've heard the law say, love your enemies, or sorry, love, uh, 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 love your neighbor and hate your enemies, right? And, and so the Pharisees are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The reality is the law has never said that, not once, right? The law said, love your neighbor, right? It never said anything about that you should hate your enemy. In fact, you see throughout the Old Testament, even welcoming in of the enemy, welcoming in of the stranger, welcoming in of the sojourner. Again, constantly a self-sacrificial type of life for the sake of the other. And so it's never said, hate your enemy. What had happened is, is the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time have taken it and, and gone farther with it so that they, again, could achieve their own means. And so love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Jesus just says, no. Let's flip that sucker right upside down. You love your neighbor and you love your enemy. I mean, I don't know if there is a more scandalous aspect to the ethic of the kingdom of God than this reality. Because you're not going to find anywhere else, anywhere else where this is a recommendation for your life. But for the Christian, it's not just a recommendation, it's a mandate. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. How often do you do that? And this goes from big to, I mean, this can happen in all sorts of ways. I think of, I, mean, I, I know a lot of, like a lot of you guys run businesses, right? And I know a lot of situations where you've been running those businesses, people have screwed you guys over. And done things, they're like, man, like, nope. 
Have you prayed for them? Have you shown them love? Have you thought, I want what's best for you? Or have you said, nope, forget you, man. Maybe chose some choice words and done your own thing. This one, man, this one is one we, I struggle with big time. Now on the entire countrywide scene, our, our nation struggles with this one big time. The kingdom of God, the church, struggles with this one big time. We see people who are enemies that aren't enemies. We see other churches as opposition. They're not. Boy, we intentionally try and pray for other churches here because we constantly remind ourselves in a culture that's trying to get us to compete that that's just silly. Do you love your enemy? I can't. I don't know who your enemies are. I don't know what they look like. I don't know how they manifest themselves. Do you pray for them? Do you love them? Because it's very easy to just love the people that think you're great. But the people who are gossiping behind your back, the people who say things about you that you, you know aren't even true, the people who screw you over, the exes that have screwed you over, the future exes that will screw you over, right? Some of us that have struggled with, with this previously, with divorce, thinking through, well, that she's now my enemy. No, she's not. Satan's our enemy, plain and simple. But there's a greater reality in the midst of all of this text that we have to land on. Okay, There's a greater reality that's underneath all of this. And it comes in verse 48. And it says this. It says, you must, therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, time in and time out, in the church today, we'll constantly hear, listen, it's no big deal. You know what I mean? Like, okay, you sinned. That's all right. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I heard a, a pastor recently preach from the pulpit, God does not demand perfection. I heard it again once actually here. And I need to, and I'm, I'm not even sure who said it, but I, it wasn't right. God does demand perfection. So everything that was just given, everything that we just said, man, this is really hard. How am I going to live this out? God does demand that of you, and he demands it of me. God demands perfection. If God didn't demand perfection, Jesus didn't have to come. Okay? Jesus only had to come because perfection was the expectation and the bar for his kingdom. If it was just, hey, you know what? It's around here. You know, it's, it's not perfection. It's somewhere down here. Then guess what? Let's just try harder, and then we'll get there, and eventually God will love us. But no, perfection was the bar, and so Jesus had to come. And so a couple verses, Hebrews 5, 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey and love him. Romans 5, 10, for if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the reality and the beautiful part of these really heavy commandments of God and this, this shaping ethic of the kingdom of God is that Jesus, again, as always, lives these out perfectly. That he loves his enemy, who is us. The Bible over and over and over calls us enemies of God. Right? We, we're just, we don't deserve it. We are actually completely and always opposed and against him, and yet he loved us enough to still come and live that life we couldn't live. That perfect, that perfect demand was fulfilled in Jesus. 
So now, right, now we can say, okay, okay, if this is true, we were enemies, but now you've come and you've loved us. Man, how can we not go and love our own when we ourselves have been enemies of God until he brought us into his fold? We think this is a crazy idea, but we are recipients of someone living this out perfectly. And so now we go and do the same thing with the rest of the world, with each other. We live out this ethic as hard as it may be, and the only possible reason why is because Jesus has come and done what he's done. So we're set free. We don't, we're not bound to this perfection. We strive for it every day, but again, like we said last week, we're not bound to law. We're bound to Christ. And we're bound to Christ, so when we are his, we try and live this stuff out as much as possible. But I just ask you, what's going on in your heart? What's going on internally with, with your life? And only, honestly, listen, only you can answer that question. There's no one in here who's going to answer that for you. I can, tell you a lot, I can tell a lot of you what the outside of your life looks like, but you're the only one who knows the internal. So you're the only one that can address this. And so I highly want to encourage us as a church this week to just be highly intentional with engaging with God analyzing your heart. Go through this as a rubric. Man, have I been angry, right? Have I been lustful? Have I been, and, and see that these are the roots of all of these issues. And then talk to someone else about it. The best possible thing I think we can do outside of talking to God is talk to someone that we trust and we respect. And so what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna invite up, we have 16 of our mentors to come up right now. And so if the mentors can start making their way up front, and as always, can you clap for them until they get here so it's not weird?